1: Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Happy Wednesday. I hope you guys are having a great week. It's the middle of the week, almost the weekend. We're almost there, which is always nice. So if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I am your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button before we get started. We post weekly episodes here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I also have a podcast Instagram that you can follow. It is just at Killer Instinct Podcast. Again, just at Killer Instinct Podcast, where you can keep up on all the updates of all things Killer Instinct. I also have a podcast email where you can send in any case requests, suggestions, theories, comments, questions, anything like that can be sent in to the podcast email, which is just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Before we get started on today's case, I do want to go back for a second and talk about some of the theories that you guys had, or not necessarily theories, but just comments that you guys had on the katherine knight case that is the case that we ended with when we took right before we took our two-week break it was the last case of 2020 it was a crazy one if you have not listened to it i highly recommend that you either pause this now go back listen and then come back to hear the comments on it and to finish this episode or you can do vice versa Skip through this part, listen to this episode, and go back and listen to the Catherine Knight one at a later time. If you remember, Catherine Knight was the woman who completely slaughtered her boyfriend, John Price, and dismembered his body and mutilated him completely and then attempted to feed his body parts to his children. Yes, you heard that correctly. This is a case that will blow your freaking mind if you have not heard this one already. So, we covered this case and you guys had a lot to say about it. Again, you can always email killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts. And you guys definitely did that for the Catherine Knight one. So, I figured that we would go through some of them and read what you had to say. So the first entry comes from someone who says, Hi Savannah, me and my cousin absolutely adore your show and just thank you for existing. But I have one thing to say about Catherine's case. I've lived in Australia for a decade at least before coming back to my amazing home country. And I remember when I was in kindergarten, we heard little snippets of this story and we called her crazy killer Catherine. So I was excited to see when you did her case and I got to see the full picture. Both me and my cousin want to ask why on earth did John sleep with her knowing full well that she was going to kill him? Even earlier, telling the same to his coworkers, not victim blaming here. He's a poor man who didn't deserve what happened and she's a psychopath. But I mean, if something like that were to happen and they showed up at my house, I would run away screaming, love you and everything that you do. Well, first of all, That's incredibly sweet. Thank you so much. I love you too. And to that, I have to say a couple things. One, you're absolutely right. If he was so afraid for his life, why would he allow her into his home? But remember, Catherine came into his home when he was already asleep. So whether that was she had a key to his house or he left the front door open and was expecting her, that part we're not entirely clear on. By the time that he saw her, he could have thought, you know, she's already here, let's make her happy, let's just sleep together instead of fighting and arguing. Seems like the easiest option, and if she was pursuing him, he might have thought, oh, okay, I'm fine, and let's just sleep together and forget about it. I don't think that if Catherine came into the home threatening him initially that he would have continued to have done that and would have slept with her. But again, remember, John was also fully aware of Catherine's violent past. We talked about that. And yes, you're right. He did tell his coworkers, if anything happens to me, it was probably Catherine. So it's just something to keep in mind. It's a great question. If you thought that your life was in danger, why would you let the person that you would believe is threatening it into your home, but he was already asleep. So she basically broke into his house and then it's just a question of why did he sleep with her? Which I, I can't answer, I don't know that one. But my gut tells me he probably just thought sleeping with her was the easier option than just arguing with her, not knowing what was actually going to come next. So again, thank you for writing in. Now the next entry comes from someone who says, Hi, my name is Jocelyn from India. I love your podcast and I'm trying to listen to every single episode you've made. Your voice is so soothing. I was curious as to what are the conditions to get a death sentence in Australia and why did Catherine not qualify for it? Well, first of all, thank you for listening to basically every episode. And it's really cool to hear where you guys are from. To know that you guys are listening from all over the world is Mind blowing. Now, I am not too familiar with this, so I'm going to tread lightly here. But from my research, I was able to find that the death penalty in Australia. A lot of jurisdictions in Australia have abolished the death penalty. For example, Queensland abolished the death penalty in 1922. Tasmania did the same in 1968. The government abolished the death penalty in the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory in 1973. Victoria did so in 1975. South Australia, it was abolished in 1976. And Western Australia, it was abolished in 1984. And then New South Wales abolished the death penalty for murder in 1955, and then for all crimes in general in 1985. So, t- to me, from my understanding, that is the reason that Catherine did not get the death penalty. Because you would think for a crime that heinous, that horrific, that gruesome, and just disgusting, you would get the death penalty. That if she was in America, she would be getting the death penalty for sure no questions asked. You don't commit a crime that calculated and that horrific and not receive the death penalty. It just rarely, rarely happens. So that, for my understanding, is the reason that she did not get the death penalty. However, if I am incorrect, you are free to correct me in my email and I will correct myself next episode. But again, from my understanding, this is an Australian case and the death penalty has been abolished in Australia in many different areas throughout it. And then the last comment that we're going to read comes from the YouTube video that I did, and it is from someone who said, quote, the most chilling part of this case is the fact that John knew. If he had listened to his coworkers or taken some other kind of precautions or called the police saying that he was fearing for his life, maybe this would have never happened, end quote. And I completely agree. I think that John here's the interesting thing about John. John knew going into this what he was getting himself into to an extent. He knew about Catherine's violent past. He knew that she had acted out violently towards past boyfriends before, and he still took that risk. Why? I have no idea. If someone told me that they had been violent with girlfriends in the past, I would get nowhere near them. However, that is not this case. Maybe he thought that he could change her or it wouldn't happen to him or it wouldn't faze him because he's a man and she's a woman and who knows. I do think that when John told his coworkers, if I don't come home tomorrow or come to work tomorrow, it's because Catherine killed me. I wonder if that was more of a, oh yeah, she's going to kill me type of ordeal. Or if that was a, no, if I don't come to work tomorrow, I am dead. Because it does make you wonder, why wouldn't you just go home grab your kids and leave. But again, the kids were at a sleepover and Catherine wasn't there. And I think that when he went home, he thought the coast was clear because Catherine wasn't there. Now, if it were me, would I still stay at that house? No, I would leave. However, I do think that he just didn't think that this was going to happen to him. com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So now with all of the housekeeping stuff out of the way, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the wildly shocking case of Katie and Stephen Playdoll. This is a solved case and one that I know is going to completely blow you guys away. And I know some of you may have already heard of this case before, as it was pretty popular in the media when everything occurred for reasons you will definitely soon understand. However, if you have not heard of this case, buckle up because it's about to get Crazy. So this case begins in 1995, and in 1995 is when a 15-year-old girl named Alyssa met a 20-year-old man named Stephen Platel online. At the time that they met, Alyssa was living in San Antonio, Texas, and Stephen was living in New York. The two of them talked online for a while before they ended up meeting up in person and Steven flew to San Antonio and their relationship progressed from there. Now, due to the age difference, Alyssa's parents heavily disapproved of their relationship. They were not happy with it whatsoever. However, regardless, their relationship still continued, and Alyssa actually became pregnant, and when she was 17 years old, had a daughter. It was her and Stephen's daughter that they named Denise. So, she was 16 when she got pregnant and 17 when she had Denise, and Stephen was 22. At the time, time that Denise was born. But after Denise was born, Stephen's behavior began to change drastically. He began being very abusive towards Denise as well as Alyssa. According to Alyssa, she said, quote, Steve had a bad temper. He would destroy things in the home when he was upset, punching holes in the walls, end quote. So, Denise was given up for adoption when she was 8 months old due to Stephen's bad temper and abusive behavior. And when she was put up for adoption, she was adopted by the Fusco family. The Fusco family consisted of Anthony Fusco and Kelly Fusco. And at the time that they adopted Denise, they were living in a town called Dover, which is about 80 miles away from New York City. The Fuscos already had another biological daughter of their own when they adopted Denise, so it was their biological daughter, and now they were bringing Denise into their family as well. And when they adopted Denise, they actually ended up changing her name. So instead of being Denise Fusco, her name got changed to Katie Fusco. And that is what we are going to be referring to her as throughout the rest of this episode. So we will be referring to her as Katie. Now, according to Carrie Gold, who was Katie's adoptive mom's brother, so in essence, Katie's uncle, he said, quote, Katie had a very normal life. My nickname for Katie was Pac-Man because she always was eating. She loved animals and she was a vegetarian, end quote. Katie attended Dover High School and was well-known for her artistic abilities. She was incredibly creative and would always draw comic strips in school, and her life plan was actually to attend college and pursue a career in digital advertising. In a blog post, Katie wrote, quote, "'A pen and something to draw on became a safe place for me.' ink became my weapon against rules and regulations. To be short, for me, a life without art is no life at all." Now, Katie's plans to go to college were actually cut short when Katie was 18 years old and she decided that she wanted to find her biological parents, so that's exactly what she did. Katie had reached out to Alyssa and Steven, who at that point were living together in Henrico County, Virginia. And after talking back and forth online for a little bit, Katie decided that she was going to actually go to Virginia and move in with her biological parents. She wasn't going to go to college. That was going to be put on hold for a little bit. She was going to go live with Alyssa and Steven. And Alyssa and Steven at this point also had two other daughters as well. They were their biological daughters. And Alyssa said that at the time that she got pregnant with both of her younger daughters, she was just much more stable to be a mother. She was in a much better place to be a mother than she was when she got pregnant with Katie. So after talking back and forth online for a little bit, Katie decided that she was going to go to Virginia and move in with her biological parents. Now, her adoptive parents, Tony and Kelly, said that they were very apprehensive about Katie making this move. However, she was 18 years old and that she was old enough to make her own decisions, so they ended up supporting her in this move. Now, when Katie moved in with the Playdals, she was not moving in to a happy-go-lucky family. At the time of the move, Steven and Alyssa had decided to separate. However, they were still living in the same house together, but they were sleeping in separate bedrooms. And according to Alyssa, she said that she had suffered from emotional and verbal abuse from Steven for years. She said, quote, I was always on eggshells. Whatever his mood was, everybody knew, and that mood was not often happy. There was a lot of yelling, a lot of things smashed in the house and in front of our kids, end quote and when Katie moved in, she actually told Alyssa that one of the main reasons that she had been put up for adoption was because Stephen had abused her when she was a baby. However, according to Alyssa, she said that the news of this didn't seem to be a concern of Katie's at all. It really didn't faze her, and she wasn't upset by this. Stephen also didn't have a job at the time that Katie moved in, so he was pretty much home the majority of the while Alyssa was at work as a supervisor for T-Mobile and pretty much instantaneously, Alyssa said that Stephen's behavior changed when Katie moved in to the home. And something that Alyssa also noticed when Katie moved in was Stephen's attention to his appearance. Prior to Katie's move, Stephen never took into account his appearance. He never tried to impress anyone, never tried to dress up. However, Alyssa said that when Katie moved in, she started to notice that Stephen took much more consideration into his appearance He started wearing skinny jeans and tight shirts, he started to grow out his hair, and he also shaved his beard. And after about six weeks of Katie living with the Playdles, Stephen actually slept on the bedroom floor of the room that Katie slept in. And at first, Alyssa thought that this was immediately strange, red flags went off everywhere, however, she decided to let it go. But it is when it happened the next night after that, so now with it being two nights in a row, Alyssa immediately decided to confront Stephen about this, and this is when Stephen told her, That it was absolutely none of her business and he stormed out of the house with Katie. And then finally, in November 2016, Alyssa had enough of everything and decided to move out of the house with her two other children, leaving Stephen and Katie to be the only ones living in that house. And just for timeline purposes, Katie moved into the house in August 2016 and Alyssa then moved out in November 2016. So it was just a couple months before Alyssa ended up moving out. Now what Alyssa didn't know at the time that she moved out was that Katie and Steven had already began a sexual relationship behind her back while she was still in the house. The relationship was consensual and it continued once Alyssa left. And even though this relationship was carrying on for months, Alyssa actually didn't find out about it until May 2017. And the reason she found out about it was actually because Alyssa was looking through the journal of her 11-year-old daughter, And in this journal, she found an entry where her daughter wrote, My dad calls her baby also his baby. My dad even says she's my stepmom. He doesn't even want me to say or call her sister anymore. And this is when Alyssa put two and two together. Katie was pregnant with Stephen's child. After reading this, Alyssa called Stephen and she said, I started to become hysterical, and I called him. I said, is Katie pregnant with your baby? And he just said, I thought you knew. We're in love. End quote. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now we move to July 20th, 2017, and this was two months after Stephen's divorce from Melissa was finalized. And on this day in July, Stephen and Katie ended up getting married in Parkton, Maryland. Now, the reason that they were able to get married was because they lied on their application and said that they were unrelated. Now, in attendance at the wedding were Katie's adoptive parents, who said that there was nothing that they could do about the situation and decided that it was best to support Katie. And Stephen's mother was also at the wedding there to support Stephen. After the wedding a couple months later, on September 1st, 2017, Stephen and Katie welcomed a son together, whom they named Bennett. After Bennett was born, the three of them then moved into a new house together in Knightdale, North Carolina. But things for the happy couple did not last long because in January 2018, Stephen and Katie were both arrested on charges of incest and adultery. And it was actually Alyssa who had contacted the authorities and let them know what was going on between Steven and Katie when she found out that Katie was pregnant. So she contacted the authorities months before they actually got arrested. However, the investigation took months before any arrest could be made. Now, when Katie and Stephen were arrested, Stephen's mother was actually given custody of Bennett. However, it wasn't long after their arrest that both Stephen and Katie were released on bond. However, even though they were released, they were both ordered to have no contact with one another. So they were given a no contact order. And once they were released, Katie actually ended up moving back home to New York to live with her adoptive parents again, and Stephen's mother continued to have custody of Bennett. Now, even though they had a no-contact order, it wasn't until a couple months later, in April 2018, that Katie ended up breaking up with Stephen. And just to clarify, this no-contact order didn't just mean that they couldn't not see each other in person, it meant No phone calls, no texting, no FaceTime, No Instagram, none of that. Nothing was allowed. No contact means no contact. However, Katie actually ended up breaking this no contact order when she called Stephen in April 2018 and ended their relationship. She called him and told them that the relationship was over, and this absolutely infuriated Stephen so much so that he ended up driving through the night from North Carolina to New York on the night of April 11th, moving in. To the early morning hours of April 12th. However, before he left, he made one stop before he took the drive, and this stop was to his mother's home to pick up his son, Bennett. This is when Stephen drove Bennett back to his house, suffocated him, and left his body in a closet. After Stephen murdered his son, he then got in the car and started making the drive to New York. On April 12, 2018, which was a Thursday, Katie and Tony, which is Katie's adoptive father, left their home in Dover and started to head towards Waterbury. However, what they didn't know was that Stephen had been hiding in a minivan nearby, waiting and watching for Katie to leave. Once Katie and Tony finally did leave, Stephen began to follow them and shortly after, open-fired while they were at a stop sign shooting both Katie and Tony, which resulted in both of their deaths. After shooting them, Stephen then called his mother and told her that he had killed Bennett, Katie, and Tony. And this is when Stephen's mother hung up the phone to call the authorities and told them what had happened and also asked them to do a welfare check on Bennett. So, this is when the authorities went to Stephen's home and found Bennett dead inside of one of the closets in Stephen's house. At this point, police obviously wanted to get to Stephen, but before they could, Stephen had pulled over to the side of the road and turned the gun on himself, ultimately ending his own life and that's really where this whirlwind of a case ends i do want to mention though that this case did bring to light the term genetic sexual attraction because when this case blew up obviously you hear incest and everyone freaks out and it becomes this whole ordeal because it is a whole ordeal but this case really brought genetic sexual attraction and put a term to it to the light. Now, what this means, it's not just simple basic incest, which is not simple or basic, but what it means is it is defined as an overwhelming sexual attraction that may develop between close blood relatives who first meet as adults. So, basically, the difference with this is genetic sexual attraction happens when two blood-related relatives meet later in life, so it's not like they're growing up with them. It's not like Katie grew up with Stephen her entire life and then this happened. This was she met Stephen when she was 18 after already living with a different family her entire life. However, I do want to say whichever way you want to word it, however you want to put it, this is incest, whether they met later in life or knew each other throughout the entirety of their lives. This is incest. And this is a case that we've never really covered before. We've never really talked about incest. I know that I did the Elizabeth Fritzel case on my YouTube channel years before Killer Instinct was ever a thing, so we've never really talked about it. And when I was researching this case, it was just one thing after another of how could this even get any more twisted, but then it shocks you and it does. And when it comes to Alyssa about this case, she said, quote, I will remember Katie in my own way. As for Steve, I have no idea and I don't even want to think about him, end quote. Like I said earlier, Bennett is in the custody of Steven's mother. And to me, I think what's most shocking about this case is how recent it was. This happened basically three years ago, a little under three years ago at this point. And that's wild again some of the cases that i read and the cases that i cover i always think that this had to have happened so long ago because there's no way that this could be happening now and then you cover something like this that just happened under three years ago and it just goes to show that this is happening in the day-to-day and in, in everyone's day-to-day life so it's mind-blowing and i would love to hear your opinion on it so let me know what you think you can email me at killerinstinctpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com again that is just killer instinct at gmail.com and with that being said you guys that is all for me today thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah i'm your host of killer instinct make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode and with that being said i will be back next week and until then stay safe guys
0: so i i know you've got a lot going on but remember i'm here for you